Conor MacLeod of the Clan MacLeod. And I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramius. Chief Metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Looks like everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi. I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time a Cloud, the only podcast to our knowledge to go through that wonderful 1986 film Highlander, scene by scene. I'm your host Rob Daniel and as always I'm joined by my kinsman, Mr Rob Wallace. And as always it's a true delight to be here. And I would also have to say that um, we are recording this, uh, well I'm recording this in my flat, it is the evening. Um, my flat has walls that basically tissue so if you can hear some people in the background i'm not having a party uh but we do actually have another person on this episode he's been on before he's back welcome back mr adrian zach hello thank you for having me that's quite an introduction <laughs> well it's uh i'm in the other room next door to you i can shout through the wall yeah that's well oh, believe me it's uh you wouldn't have to shout you could just talk at a normal volume and i'd still hear it through these walls um but yeah, it's actually really, really nice that you're back because, of course, the last time we had you on, we were talking about sex immortals, and uh, I thought that might be the last time we ever hear from you. Well, you know, I did say lose my number. But, but we did not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we tried, but we just had to get you back on because you're like sugar to us. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> so sweet. You say to the diabetic, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. That's doubly inappropriate. Um... Okay, well, moving swiftly on, uh, today we are going to be looking at the scene when the Kurgan has kidnapped Brenda and takes her on a joyride through the streets of New York and causes lots of chaos and destruction. This is actually quite a nice thing to get you back onto, Adrian, because the last scene or the last shot of the scene that you talked about previously was when the Kurgan was taking a joyride in a car through the streets of New York with the old lady on the front of the car. So the last shot that you talked about, he was... You mean the sex immortal? Yes, yes. that's right. Yes, the sex immortal Ethel. So the last shot that you talked about in the previous episode was of the Kurgan driving out of frame. The first shot you're going to be talking about in this episode is the Kurgan driving into frame. So there's just a lovely continuity to that. It's almost like it was designed. It was not designed. <laughs> it was not. It's just, it's just one of those splendid accidents. So for those who keep track to give you the time code, this is one hour, 38 minutes and two seconds to one hour, 40 minutes and 40 seconds. So 138.02 to 1.40.40. And yes, so... This is quite a lively sequence, but Adrian, what did you think of it? Um, yeah, the, this is, it's, you know, none more 80s, is it? I mean, you've got the unnecessary car chase, bit of um, sort of innocent pedestrians getting mowed down, and in the the great wide shot, all the crowds lining the street because they really couldn't be bothered to hide the fact they were doing it quickly. So there's, I mean, which Russell Mulcahy actually says on the commentary, they had to shoot very quickly and they didn't have time. So I got the impression that... He wasn't very happy with it. Well, it wasn't him shooting it. Oh, interesting. Ah, oh, so he's just blaming someone else. Well, he's one of the people who gets hit in the car. He's one of the insert shots. But... Yes. Excuse me! Ah! 
but that would have been shot in a studio, presumably, right? Yeah, it's obviously shot in a studio because it's just a black backdrop. There's literally, yeah. you see two guys walking across the street they in denim, and then there's two people in totally different hairstyles, outfits, one <laughs> of them Russell Mulcahy, against a slow back black drop, sort of doing fake screaming while someone waves a light bulb at them. Yes. This, this sequence was shot by the second unit director, Andy Armstrong, who went on to uh, second AD, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Kroll. Who classic, well, classics of British cinema. Oh, sorry, who had, sorry, who would at this point have AD'd Spy Who Loved Me? Um, and Kroll as well. Oh, I see. So we'd worked on two really, really big films. So what did he work on after this? Uh, let me... Obviously worked again after Kroll. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember Kroll when, when Kroll... Is there a Kroll cast? <laughs> Columbia Pictures presents a world apart from anything you have seen before. Kroll. Kroll does not hold up well. It was never one of those films that was really great, even at the time. But before it came out, my God that was just going to be the next great film. Because Return of the Jedi magazine, I think, had... They had things about Kroll. Because I think it was just like another fantasy film coming out when the, and there weren't that many. It was also, of course, a British film. And there were so many hopes around Kroll. And then ultimately, it was a bit of a lacklustre film. But the poster and the boomerang thing that he's got, the bladed boomerang... You mean the glaive? The glaive, yeah. The glaive, that's <laughs> right. Yes, that's right. They're both really good. The poster's great, yeah. But it is a... It's the poster a, is great. A, I've only ever seen it on video, as most people did. So I've only seen half the film. But um, it doesn't... Te- I'm not tempted to buy the Blu-ray. No, me neither. I've never heard... Think, I think it's such a... I don't know what it is about that phrase. It's like, there were such high hopes for Kral. Yeah. That's the British film industry in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it was Kral. We tried genre filmmaking. It didn't work out. So back to Linen. Andy Armstrong also, before Highlander, directed Kral. <laughs> and, uh, AD, sorry, Kral the, and the other uh, spy who loved me, second AD'd them. Uh, went on to second AD uh, Galaxy Quest, oh. the 2001 Planet mm. of the Apes, mm. um, iRobot, mm. Aragon, and yeah, I mean, that's where it seems to... That's a film that's for- been forgotten by time, hasn't it? Even with dragons. Yeah, that... Well, on that, um, Disney are bringing it back. Disney are turning it into a TV series. That's, yes, that's right. They are. they are, aren't they? Um... When I was a kid, Christopher Paolini, I read all the books... And he was at an age where he was like late teens, I think, when he was first published. And I was like, that's achievable. That's doable. Mm. Like, that's going to be, yeah. Um, got them published when he was like 16. And I was like, yeah, that, 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 that's going to be me. You know what? If Christopher Palini can do that, I, you know, I, I can nail this. That's right, yes. Did he go to Eton and his parents run a publishing house? I No, he was, he was, I think he's a Yank. Oh, he'd be better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Andy Armstrong was also... He's got a really good career. He was action unit director on Nightbreed. He was first assistant director on Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Um, assistant director on Hope and Glory. Second unit director on Rambo 3. Wow, he has had... He's got a book in him. He's got a very good book in him about his job in the film industry. Uh, he was assistant director on The Dresser, which so he yeah, wasn't just doing big action fantasy films. No, I mean, I mean that is one of the dullest films ever made. But, so, um, yes. <laughs> It's like the cinematic of a coma, isn't it? But it's, um, yeah, but that's, that's a bit of a right range. And he did Galaxy Quest, so anything he does after that. Yeah. Well, and Spyro loved me, so basically he's untouchable. Yeah, he was also um, a second assistant director on Superman 2. And, and a second assistant director on Evil Under the Sun, 
which is a delightful Poirot movie with Peter Ustinov. Is that the Ustinov one? That's the second of the Ustinov ones, yeah, the one after Death on the Night. Okay, cool. And he was a stuntman, and yeah, he's got lots of stuff in him. He was also a second assistant director on Force 10 from Navarone. Which is okay, but I do have a soft spot for it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a solid action film, that, with Harrison Ford, isn't it? Yeah. He's in that one. And um, Nazi getting decapitated with a wire on a tank. So that was the bit everyone remembered at school. Yes, that's right. And he also did Hanover Street as well, which that was Harrison Ford as well, wasn't it? Um, and Christopher Plummer and Leslie Ann Down. That was a World War II thing yeah, as well. Yeah, that was another one of those kind of interesting films I rented that I got no recollection of anymore. Yes, I, yeah, I remember watching that with my parents. That's a Peter Hyams film, that is. I have to watch Hanover Street again. Anyway, so Rob... <laughs> Look what you've created. So Andy Armstrong shot the entire sequence then? Yeah. Um, wow. John Melville's book, uh, A Kind of Magic, delves into this. And, you know, thank you, John, as always. Um, apparently it was just two, pretty much two lines in the script about, you know, the Kurgan grabs Brenda and tears off in the car and, you know, takes it to Silver Cup, which was expanded into this. Um, and Andy Armstrong used long-range lenses in order to emulate Russell Mackay's style in the rest of the film. Uh, the stunt coordinator was Vic Magnotta, who I'll talk about him in a bit. Oh, interesting. The main stunt, the primary stunt people were Shane Dixon and Greg Barnett, and other stunt artists, I guess stunt performers, as as listed, there may have been more, were Jerry Hewitt, Edward Marino, Harry Madsen, Deborah Watkins, and Paul Lee. Ah, so Deborah Watkins may be the passenger who's doubling for Roxanne Hart when the car nudges the motorbike rider off, off the road. Because the motorbike rider played by Brian Schmurz. Because I. Well, he deserved to be run down for wearing the uh, snow washed denim. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I did a frame by frame on that shot when the car's nudging the bike rider. And I thought, if that isn't Roxanne Hart, it is a very, very good double because it does look like her. You just see a few frames of her face, but the shape of the face is very, very similar. And I thought, I wonder if that is her. Maybe they learned the lesson from the old lady clinging on the front of the car. (laughs) Yeah, indeed, with those big muscular thighs. (laughs) Clearly a bloke. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, so that's okay then. So, well, before we get into more about the behind the scenes of that, let's talk about the sequence itself and what we like about it, and yeah, what we think, um, what we don't like about it. I actually think it's a, I actually think it's a really, really consistently great sequence. Um, but here's me thinking this is clearly Russell Mulcahy having a go at doing some Mad Max stuff uh, because a lot of Razorback, his previous film, has got that Mad Max feel and I thought he was now trying to do some of the car stunts from that film. But no, this was just given over to the assistant director and uh, or second unit director and so Russell Mulcahy had no input into the storyboarding of it or anything. Not, not that I can see. Wow, okay. Okay. So what do we think of this sequence? Do we like it? I think it's fun. I feel sorry for Roxanne Hart because she was just a bit screaming faint. Um, but it's got one of my enduring images of the Kurgan. I always remember is the image of him with the safety pins holding his neck together, yeah. which is you see quite clearly in this. Um, and his version of New York, New York is much better than Freddie Mercury's. <laughs> Ooh. Shut up! Uh, which is on the soundtrack, which is 
awful. I mean, Russell Mulcahy on the commentary says he asked Freddie Mercury to record it and Freddie Mercury was not really up for doing it. And you can kind of tell. It's great. It's but you get the you get the impression that um I think Clancy Brown may have done that spontaneously because he talks about it being a very long night and that he was just trying to keep himself entertained basically and as we you know we get the impression that um Russell Mackay wasn't you know overly actor centric and perhaps that carried through to uh, to Andy Armstrong who of course was doing this basically in the space of an evening. Um, there to yeah. If Clancy Brown and Roxanne Hart worked out the him kind of miming her shut up when she starts screaming shut up at him and he kind of mimes it at one point which i always think is a really really great little character beat to show just how much glee is having in her discomfort um Yeah, I mean, a lot of it feels like it's ad-libbed. I mean, he's uh, ever played chicken and then the excuse me as he's mowing down the pedestrians. Ever played chicken? That's, they feel like ad-libs. Well, he is, that's right, yeah. He's just taking her on this tour. Yeah, so that's just him keeping himself entertained while they do this. And this was all shot in one night. Uh, that seems to be the case. I think it potentially was uh, July 10th or there or thereabouts. Wow. Basically, Kurgan is a tour guide, isn't it? I mean, it's pointing out the landmarks and silver carp at one point. Well, with the uh, with the areas being um, closed off, the production manager Itis Atkins apparently, and this is a, this is the technical street greased a lot of uh, location people in order to basically get streets closed <laughs> on like a just give us twenty minutes. Oh wow! But it's quite a big scene though, isn't it? So it's got you've got car crashes. They've closed some streets off. They're driving over the bridge, one of the bridges. There's some helicopter shots. They've got the bridge rigged with, um, or the car probably rigged with those with machines just like flight sparks so it looks like it's clipping off the uh, metalwork so it's quite a big scene yeah and russell mckay says says in the director's commentary oh you know we couldn't afford a lot of extras that's why you know me and my boyfriend had to be uh, had to be there and it's like you could afford quite a lot of cars like the sort of danny boyle approach on 28 days later he just gets some um very i think he said it's something like very friendly pas who just kind of like could chat to people and basically hold the traffic up while they were you know talk to people just talk who were just kind of you know that is brilliant for want of a better word i think they were just pretty pas but he basically said you know they just got people who could just keep drivers chatting and they just kept that to, to hold the traffic to stop people getting pissed off which sounds like something out the weinstein mirror obviously but the thing about that though is that yeah that's fine for 28 days later when all you need is it's guerrilla filmmaking isn't and it? all you need is like an empty street but when you've got a car doing like a u-turn or something or like a handbrake turn and then there are cars behind it smashing into each other it's like it was new york in the 80s i mean come on yeah that's right it's like i mean it really does seem like oh that's so really you could just do that um what is a whole load of people in the wide shot lined up on the street i mean if you you see it i mean you wouldn't notice it unless you suddenly pause the thing but there's literally you can see there's a whole line of people along the pavement or sidewalk um 
as the car comes careering. Yeah, I really like this sequence. I think this is a really good action sequence. Um, it's got energy, hasn't it? I mean, it, yeah. you know, and it's practical and it, it looks like they're there. I mean, there's a weird bit when they're driving over to the Silver Cup where they're actually, it's obviously a camera dolly and they, because they're on the footpath because you suddenly look and you, they're sort of racing towards um, the Silver Cup and then you realise that the, there's the handrail and then the, the road on the left. So they're obviously on the footpath bit. But um, oh, I thought that, yeah. Which is a few. There's a few things you kind of you stop to think of it too long. But if because it's moving really quickly, these are just like little throwaway inserts that you you know actually add up to something quite energetic and it's fun. No, absolutely, and it's also one of those where yeah, there's great use of um, as you were talking about the telephoto lenses to keep that consistency. Although I think with the Rotten Mokai in this film uses all sorts of lenses. I mean, this is coming out of a scene with extreme wide-angle lenses when the Kurgan breaks into Brenda's flat to abduct her. That's all shot like a horror film with wide-angle lenses. But the but yeah, the telephoto nature of this scene, shooting on a short focal plane, just means everything looks closer together, which means everything is just moving or looks like it's moving faster. Uh... That was really clever. But there are some scenes where you can see that those cars are moving and it is driving against traffic at one point. So Yeah, no, I mean, there's a, my, my favourite bit, I think, is the planes, trains and automobiles moment when they drive between yes. two articulated lorries, which, which <laughs> suddenly are wider apart than they were the second before because at one point their wing mirrors are touching and then suddenly there's room for a car right. in the middle. But I did half expect her to turn around and, you know, the Kurgan be a red devil with a beard and a corn. <laughs> That's right. A la John Candy. <laughs> yeah, I, I do love all of Clancy Brown's reaction shots where it's just like, ah! Or like, you know, yeah. covering his eyes or, you know, doing New York, New York, etc. Um... <laughs> The covering his eyes bit's great. He's like he's behaving like an annoying child or a psychopathic child. I think it's interesting that in a lot of the um, the shots on Brenda, especially the close-ups, you only get her eyes in shot. The eyes in the top of her head. I think it's one. It's just an interesting angle, isn't it? Because it's, it's like it does suggest that she. I think one is trying to push herself down in her seat, but also that the world is literally out of kilter. So therefore, she's not framed properly to kind of get across just how out of whack her world has become since she's sitting next to the Kurgan, because she's sitting next to the Kurgan. I mean, that's a story in itself. Well, she does faint, doesn't she? She becomes ghetto all overcome in 80s heroine style. And that's the one thing about this that uh, is very, very 80s, is that it doesn't know what to do with her, so it just has her faint at the end. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it's a presumably intended comedy moment. I mean, you know, if it had been the 90s or early 2000s, they probably would have fridged her, but, you know, it was... um... (laughs) That's right, it would have been, and it would have become a big revenge thing at the end for him to avenge her death. Um, Yeah, but uh, they didn't go there, thankfully. It's one of those things now where she would try to grab the wheel, and it would, I think, have been quite nice if they'd have done that. And just have the Kurgan say, sure, if you want to go, that's fine. And just let it do it. Yeah, just let it. But yes, it is. Because we three saw this at the NFT back in 2018. And the National Film Theatre, it was like, I couldn't remember what happened to her at the end of this. Oh, yes, that's right. She faints. Now, I'm not saying that I wouldn't faint. I probably would. But it just seems like a very throwaway 80s thing of like well she would be a pain in the ass to get to the silver cup thing to tie her up if she was if she was conscious so we'll just have a faint that's fine we don't need to then shoot a scene of her trying to get away as he takes her there well actually funny that you say that in the novel 
she does escape. It's a massive thing. Oh, wow. She, like, gets out of the car. She gets away. She gets to the cops. And the Kurgan basically goes on a rampage and gets her back. That's interesting. It's like a few-page thing. So it's more than the two lines saying the Kurgan kidnaps Brenda and drives. <laughs> yeah. it's, substan- it's substantially more than that. It's, uh... And I think Roxanne Hart is great in this. I mean, apparently she says, you know, quote unquote, she describes the shoot as difficult, which is a long night and you're being driven around in fast cars and you're not enjoying it. Like the scene where um, the the trucks are all coming towards them and the air horns go. Apparently Roxanne Hart was not warned about that in advance. So her kind of terrified reaction is fairly genuine. Um, Apparently she slaps, um, she slapped Andy Armstrong after that. It's one that's like, oh, we laugh about it now, but at the time she was pretty upset. Wow, okay. that's um. So there were some 80s production methods going on as well alongside uh, the 80s uh, approach. The, uh, the, free, the freed kid approach. The freed kid approach, that's right, yes. Where's, what was it, when he was setting off shotguns? Fire, he had, he had guns, guns hidden behind the flats, and he was just pulling them off between shots on the exorcist and just firing off guns to keep everyone on well, it was it was also to get reaction shots wasn't it so when people would turn around yeah. suddenly they just weren't doing it properly so he would fire a shotgun to the point where max von Sydow then would arrive on set and ask i think the first assistant director hello where are the guns today oh yeah <laughs> so where there's are one the behind that wardrobe but there's one behind the door yeah. <laughs> um that's interesting rob because i wonder if that was in an earlier draft of the script, that the novel was based on an earlier draft of the script, and they just cut it for budget reasons. Because that would have... I mean, they usually were. Those novelizations were based on like the, produ- the original script, weren't they, the shooting scripts. There's always yeah. scenes in those books that were never in the, the film. And you kind of think that, that at this point you're building to the climax and you want to get there and you kind of get the point. So, at least, I mean, at least they didn't kill her. But it's, you know, you need to... It's unnecessary to have another five minutes on this. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, um, but yes, I'm reading the novelization right now, so it will be interesting to get to that point. As we said, the novelization is very close to the film in lots of different ways. Um, and the dialogue is very, very similar. There's extra bits in it, but the things that are in there that are in the film so far are almost identical. Um, but yes, there's also one of these things. So a few months ago, Adrian came to stay with me in Manchester and during that time, we watched the classic 80s action film Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. And during the car chase at the end of that film, Jim Belushi says, where the hell are the cops? <laughs> where are the cops? You make a U-turn and they're all over your house. Where the fuck are they? And there is a point to this where it's like, where are the police? <laughs> Well, it's funny that you say that. Apparently, um, Andy Armstrong had a bit of a difficult time, as you might imagine, with the police, who hadn't really been officially notified this was going on. <laughs> and uh, the book talks about him, you know, whether he mouthed off at the cops or the cops mouthed off at him. <laughs> there was uh, there was a bit of friction, and I think he probably narrowly avoided getting arrested. I think even if the cops mouthed off at you, you just take it if you're shooting maybe, not illegally per se, but like grey zone <laughs> um, well, yeah also they, they have guns so and they're trigger happy so you just do whatever they tell you <laughs> don't move pal don't even breathe don't move pal don't even breathe 
But there's a nice bit of continuity there, though, because the previous time Adrian was on, the first episode we recorded was the one when the Kurgan kills Castigar and all the explosions are going off. And about how the police outside of the immediate London borough hadn't been informed, but you could hear the explosions miles away. So they all came rushing to the location thinking there'd been a terrorist attack. So... Yeah, it just doesn't seem as if they really told the police that they were going to shoot this film. I mean, this was all New York, wasn't it? I mean, this is the weird thing. I mean, this one, this bit was all, you know, we were talking about how they, and you've talked on some of the other episodes, about how they're flip-flopping between, you know, New York and Hermansy and places like that. I mean, this is great because it's obviously New York and it's very much, they haven't used Toronto or anything like that. It is, it is New York and uh, it gives it some authenticity. This is when Bob tells me it was shot in Toronto. No, this was definitely shot in New York. Good, good. So so was Russell Mulcahy in London at this point shooting the film? Uh, no, he was still in New York. They were both in New York, but they were getting up to the different things. Oh, right. Wow. So presumably when they're driving over the bridge and Clancy Brown's pointing out the... Uh, was it called the Star Cup or whatever it's called? Silver Cup. Silver, Silver Cup. Cup. Silver Cup. Silver Cup. He's probably saying, look, there's Russell. Because they're, yeah. they're up on the roof. <laughs> Tapping his watch because we've gone over time on the night shoot. Hmm. Um, well, that's actually quite... I'm not sure if that's if that's good of Russell Mulcahy to say, I'll do the more boring scenes, you can do the big action scene. Or if he was thinking, I'm just going to hand over that logistically complex scene to my um, second unit director because that looks like it would be quite big and we've not really got permits for it. But a lot of it would have been... I mean, a lot of it is stunt players and you're not seeing any of the sort of named cast. I mean, there's only a few sort of shots that they've obviously done with Clancy Brown and Roxanne Hart, presumably on a trolley or a flatbed or something. Mm. But so I guess that would be... A, that would kind of fall into a second unit. I mean, it's like, you know, the criticism of all the Marvel films, you know, that we've, we've had over the years is... They seem to be giving it, you know, all the action stuff's done by the second unit. Yeah, and that's the thing is that you're kind of thinking, well, that's traditionally how it's done. I mean, obviously that always used to happen on the Bond films as well, but it doesn't mean to say that has to be how it's done because Christopher Nolan never shoots with the second unit. He always just shoots everything himself. And if you're a director, you're kind of thinking, well, actually, I wouldn't mind having a go at a big action scene with lots of cars, and so I might try and shoot that myself. Ooh. I mean, that's 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 where you get into directing, isn't it? I mean, that's that's what yeah, it's indeed. Called, smashing things up and big train set <laughs> that's right yeah absolutely um that and your vision sorry you know selling your vision to the world but yeah so rob is there any other interesting facts from the shoot uh, from this sequence um not so much from this sequence there's a slightly depressing fact about the uh the stunt coordinator vic maniotta who uh, was killed during the filming of a film called skip tracer uh, otherwise released as uh, The Squeeze. Which is... Oh, the Michael Keaton thing. Yeah. yeah um, Have you seen that, Adrian? I saw it, year, again, rented it, forgotten all about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, essentially, and this is my quoting IMDb, during the production, veteran stuntman Vic Maniotta drowned while performing a car stunt in which the auto was driven off a Hoboken, New Jersey pier and plunged into the Hudson River. Vic's untimely death in his early 40s was the result of several miscalculations. Car was supposed to run off the end of the pier, flat splash into the Hudson, and sink slowly, but the vehicle had been stripped of all excess weight, including the gas tank. There was a small canister tank under the hood with just enough fuel to pull off the stunt because environmental laws prohibited fuel leakage into the river. This made the car abnormally nose-heavy. 
Vic was strapped inside a four-point harness and had a pony air bottle with regulator close at hand. For whatever reason, it was decided to replace the car's glass windshield with one made from a sheet of plexiglass. When the effects crew screwed down the new windshield, the torque on their portable drills was apparently set too high and the screws stripped out their holes. Vic drove off the end of the pier, but the car had the weight of the engine in front and very little in the rear. Instead of pancaking into the river, the car immediately nosed over and hit the surface grill first. The onrushing water hit the windshield, ripped out the screws and wrapped the plastic strip around Vic. He couldn't get to his air bottle. Safety drivers responded immediately, but before they could unwrap him from the failed windshield, he was dead. The actual sequence, not the aftermath, of course, was used in the film. <laughs> also, um, the VHS release of The Squeeze features the leading characters being quote-unquote squeezed between the two twin towers of the former World Trade Center. After the tragedy of 9-11... Wow. Yeah. That is quite a story. After the tragedy of 9-11, it was discussed at length that any future releases of the film, especially with DVD sales on the rise, should have both the towers omitted. However, a DVD release of The Squeeze has, since 2017, not yet happened. In 2019, the film was released on Blu-ray, retaining the original cover with the Twin Towers. You see, I... I do remember him being squeezed. I don't remember the Twin Towers. I think I've seen the squeeze. I think it was on telly one night. The worst thing is, I remember nothing about it. Um... Michael Keaton could be the unluckiest man in the world. Why look that dumb? But his luck <laughs> and his life are about to turn around. Because whoever has his hands on this black box... We're looking for this box. Who taught you to shoot, Ray Charles? Michael Keaton. He's really a big gun, huh? Ray Dawn Jones. The Squeeze. The comedy on a lucky street. It's, it's one of those films. It's It's... You know, you would. I rented it on video and have no recollection of it at all. It's that time when there were films being made with big stars in them, like remember Armed and Dangerous, the Eugene Levy, John Candy cop film. I think Meg Ryan's in it as well. Um, again, that was one that I saw, and all I can remember is there's a bit at the end when John Candy shoots at a truck coming towards him, and I think it spins over and he and he dodges out the way, but it's clearly front projection or something like that so um yeah but whatever well, that there's a terrible jim belushi film called filofax i think it was called something else in the u.s which you know didn't even get theatrical release in the uk and they renamed it filofax again i rented that i've got no recollection of that film whatsoever but who wrote that film i don't know jj abrams oh my god I think he was very young when he sold the scripts, and I think it's one of those that it was like a wunderkind thing for a while because it was like, wow, this kid who was about 20 years old has sold this script for lots of money. And yeah, because it was called something like, I was like, Day Off or, or Labor Day or something. I can't remember what it was called. Let's have a look. But, um, but yes, it was renamed to File the Facts for this country. Do you not think this is more down to the fact it was the coked up 80s Hollywood? <laughs> Just like any concept. It's high concept high concept wasn't it i mean it's, yes it, it was it was coming out of that it's a terrible this actually did remind me a bit of um red heat when you were saying because there's a lot of a lot of truck action in that yeah that's uh just very very quickly file facts was also known as taking care of business which uh ah tcb that's right yes presumably the uh the graceland estate threatened to sue <laughs> we can but hope um they, yeah they got mr charlie hodge out on the case charlie hodge <laughs> that's right i want to introduce a man who brings me my scars and my water mr charlie hodge give my hand charlie hodge ladies and gentlemen scars and water there aren't enough towels and water in the world for you to keep that name change it to file facts but uh and yeah, Filofax, which is this is now a Filofax pod, uh, had a budget of fifteen million, and in the in North America, grossed twenty million. 
So that's probably why it went straight to video in this country. So yes, it is is now the time to talk about the Seven Santini Brothers. Yes, there's never a bad time to talk about the Seven Santini Brothers. <laughs> so I've got some notes about the Seven Santini Brothers. Adrian, do you did you spot the Seven Santini Brothers in this sequence? No, I didn't. I was just about to say, what the fuck are the Seven Santini Brothers? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Seven Santini Brothers. The Seven Santini Brothers. Are the, <laughs> is the name of the haulage of uh, the moving and packing and shipping company that is emblazoned on the trucks. They are trucks that belong to the Seven Santini Brothers. The Seven Santini Brothers? The Seven Santini Brothers. Do they have a truck each? Or oh, they have many, many trucks. I have some details about the Seven Santini Brothers. But Rob, did you also do some Wikipedia research on the Seven Santini Brothers? The Seven Santini Brothers? Yes, <laughs> yeah, I did. I know. <laughs> which, uh, which Brooklyn Bridge are they propping up? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Um, Rob, would you like to give the names of the Seven Santini Brothers? Um, all I can see is Pasquale. Okay, right. Well, I will say that's a very, very good way to begin. Pasquale, Pietro, Parida, Rinaldo, Agostino, Gioffredo, and Martino. That's the Magnificent Seven. It really is. I know I'm getting more of the uh, Animaniacs where they're trying to name all the countries. United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru, Republic, Dominican, Cuba, Caribbean, Greenland, El Salvador, too. So five of the seven Santini brothers started the company in 1905 with the other two joining in 1907. And they were one of the world's biggest moving packing and shipping organisations with offices and warehouses in America and six other countries. They're very big. Rob, what facts do you have about the Seven Santini Brothers? The Seven Santini Brothers? The Seven Santini. Um, they uh, originated, well, their father was born in Tuscany, in Italy, and they immigrated to the US. They, uh, wait, well, they went bankrupt in, they folded dissolved in 1993 oh i was going to save that for the end <laughs> but that's fine that's fine i mean we, we can still save that for the end we do have the power of edit we have the power of editing no 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 it's fine was that after an immortal crashed some of their trucks <laughs> yeah that was that's when um, they never recovered from the kurgan they never recovered from the kurgan was brenda the uh the unknown santini sister based on uh based on her uh her mama mia in the previous scene <laughs> that's right that's ex- oh my god that is so true that is exactly right adrian there's the the previous scene when the kurgan uh, is trying to get brenda and she locks the door and takes a breath she says oh mommy help oh, but the dvd subtitle is mamma mia <laughs> <laughs> so- it's, like, it's like sky subtitling on uh, banshee oh what's that it's all over the place. oh is it yeah, it's a bit it's a bit all over the place and a couple of times they've just given up and miss sentences out and just joined them together so that the meaning kind of doesn't make sense. God. They've done that a couple of times now where I had to have the subtitles on to my hearing's a bit crap and uh, and I couldn't hear I couldn't hear a couple of the words. So Mamma Mia. So yeah Mamma Mia. <laughs> so they there was yeah, there was there was a line where the yeah, well, so that's for the Banshee podcast. But there's um yeah, there's a couple of bits where they've just taken out the the bit that you need to know and just taking the beginning and the end and left the, the meat bit out 
which doesn't really I think they just like they couldn't keep up with the, the pace of the dialogue so they just thought oh fuck it we'll leave that bit <laughs> Jesus. Well, yeah, um, uh, Rob, I think you're right. I think that uh, the Brenda is one of the Tuscany Wyatts that we know of so well. Um, so, so yes, but um, to quickly go back to Joffredo, he attributed the success of the Santini organisation to a genuine desire to do a good job and a sincere interest in the customer's problem in a spirit of helpfulness. While we are in business for gain, we always consider profit as a secondary importance to a job well done. A satisfied customer will pay dividends in the long run. That is the exact opposite of the removal company that I hired to move me from Manchester to London, who were absolutely terrible. But because I... Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners, I set him up on this earlier when I mentioned his removal company in the in this context. I can only apologise. I won't name the, uh, the company. I mean, you can. It's only slander. It's not slander if it's true. And also, uh, I do have a claim in the small claims court right now, so that will probably... <laughs> That's right, yes. I'm not going to name who it was, but they were literally the opposite of what the spirit and ethos of the Seven Santini brothers was. So, um, so yes, there we go. Um, And in 1981, part of the Bronx Park was renamed to Seven Brothers Square in honour of them. So they were were local legends and they had a great name for a a removal company, the Seven Santini Brothers. I thought they were a circus act. It sounds like they were a circus act. It does, isn't it? But no, they were into... The the Flying flying Graysons. The the Flying Graysons, that's right. Well, um, on a a related note, but wildly on a tangent at the same time... (laughs) Rob, um, this again, another alternate name for this podcast is On a Related Note. But wildly on a tangent at the same time. (laughs) And, And another thing. And another thing. Speaking of removal companies, the weirdest celebrity fact... And this is so weird it could be a Stella Street thing, is that Philip Glass and Steve Reich owned a removal company at one point and were removal men together. That is pretty weird. I cannot lie. <laughs> that's no, that's weird. That's just really odd. <laughs> when they were young and before they were famous, they, they started up a removal company and were removal men in their own company. And there is... There is a Stella Street style sketch of them composing their great works whilst, whilst removing men. Definitely humming, yeah, humming along. Yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yes, they are humming. He's humming the theme to Mishima, um, and while saying "Your end, your end." Well, Steve, Steve Wright does wear baseball caps, so I suppose he's dressed for it, yeah. Yeah. I have, yeah, I've spent a chunk of the day uh, listening to um, Wright Said Fred by Bernard Cribbins, so yeah, that's... Did he work with... Did he work with Steve Reich and Philip Glass? No, but obviously it's about, about removal men. Ah, okay. Do you know what? I've never heard that song. What? You need to listen to it immediately after this. You've, you've never heard Wright Said Fred. It's the good version of Wright Said Fred because it's not... Yeah. Inherently fascist, unlike the band Right Said Fred. Oh, are the band are they fascist as well as being COVID deniers? Oh yeah, they're shit. They're they're, they're well, they're basically shitheads. So <laughs> and that's technically that's, techni- that's technically libelous, but <laughs> it's not libelous. It's uh, slander because it's not written down. It's it's spoken. Oh well, no. You obviously haven't read the transcription of this yet. <laughs> that's right. 
That's what it becomes. Sorry, Rob. You'll hear it. You'll hear it in court. It's fine. You'll get it read back to you. Mr. Wallace has done his legal homework. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. Going into this pod, the only type of homework I ever do. So that's great. <laughs> oh, please. There's been so much great yeah. stuff about the uh, about the making of this. Um, and the Santini brothers. Yeah. Adrian, anyone that you want to... Um, Defame? Just call out on the... <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean... And it's defamed, yeah. Who can I talk about? Um, no, I mean the 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 only thing apart from Freddie Mercury murdering uh, New York, New York, is the horrific synth and drum machine score during this sequence, which is really it really dates the film and is absolutely horrific. I think you're being a bit tough on the musical accompaniment to this scene because I never thought that the fuck the... I'm not. No, it's it's garbage. <laughs> you really think that? Yeah. Um, the Freddie Mercury's. <laughs> oh, Freddie Mercury's new the Kurgan version, the Clancy Brown butter is far better than Freddie Mercury's version of New York, New York. What's wrong with it? I mean, it's like a pub. It's like a pub singer, a bad pub singer. Yeah. In fact, I've heard pub singers doing it better than Freddie Mercury. That's a, it's a shitty version of, of New York, New York. And Freddie Mercury would agree with you because he didn't want to do it and I don't think he was particularly happy. But, no, um... so he just did it really, he just did it really badly, <laughs> but they still used it. Well, what do you think of Freddie Mercury's rendition of New York, New York, or the excerpt of it in this scene? I quite like it. Yeah, I think it's all right. <laughs> okay, well, you're, you're both wrong. So, um, <laughs> well, you have, um, yeah, guest prerogative. So, you, so your word is final here. It's been cut out of the final thing. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, that drum machine thing is just it's just horrible. Before they even get, to- I thought you'd like that because it's it's eighties and very kind of of that mid eighties period. I no, no. I mean, I survived the eighties. It was great, you know, and I like some of that music. But it just doesn't. I mean, it's weird because I will defend the Wang Chung soundtrack for To Live and Die in LA. Um, Which is in a similar ballpark, right? Which is... It's very similar, yeah. It's it's terrible. It's, 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 it's pretty rubbish. And you read William Friedkin's notes on the album and it's like, man, you, you only heard this one band, didn't you? This was the only band you ever heard. Um... It's it's not good. <laughs> well, it's good for that film. It works for that film. But this just just seems a bit lazy and a bit rubbish. Well, speaking of um, litigation, uh, I only recently discovered that William Freakin tried to sue Michael Mann for Miami Vice, saying that it was clearly just stolen wholesale from To Live and Die in LA. He's pretty right. Well, pretty much. Yeah. Do you think so? I don't have thought. Well, no, they're they're grubbier cocks. They 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 don't have the. Um... It's not the Miami Vice thing where they can buy Ferraris and shit like that. But um, I think it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Similar vibe, given that. It is a similar vibe, but then it, it was the 80s. I mean, it's like, it's a similar style because that was a very, very 80s aesthetic. But Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you could say, you know, they you know they ripped off uh, Don Siegel for uh, Dirty Harry because the guy's this kind of, you know, gunslinging cop who doesn't like rules and likes big sunglasses. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and very tight jeans, which is... Yeah. Ever, I saw it to live and die in LA at the um, at the Prince Charles when they did their, as it checked the gate season, so the, the Richard Iodi thing, which was great. And I hadn't seen it on the big screen, but it was, people were laughing because it, the number of times William Peterson stands and puts his leg up with his skin tight jeans and sort of poses it's just <laughs> it's his first role and he's great but at the same time there is a drinking game to be played for the number of times he kind of man spreads and does stuff like that it's it's once you notice it you just keep spotting it and there were just lots of nervous 
giggles and sniggers when I when I saw it because um, yeah, it happens a lot. Well, if I had a thirty-two inch waist like he does in that film, I would uh, I would <laughs> definitely be man spreading in my tight jeans. <laughs> that film is also notable for being just at the time when they'd worked out how to safely do squibs on faces. So a lot of people get shot in the face in that film when you see the squib go off. I thought it was just like a paint gun. They just fired. I thought, oh, freaking, he probably just didn't tell them and just fired paint at them. No, I, I thought it was a... I wasn't sure. It was a squib, but it... It might be. You can... I think you... I mean, on Blu-ray and stuff, you could probably freeze frame it and see yeah. if it's coming from his face or if it's sort of like a... Bugsy Malone style sort of splat because <laughs> it's only a couple of seconds isn't it you know well, quite a few people get it don't they it's like it is one of those where there's oh, a yeah. yeah I think it's, it's like I think I think you're right it's like oh we can do this now right let's just do it a lot but it does I suppose it would be safer if it was like a paintball type thing although you again you're not supposed to fire those into people's faces it's William Friedkin yeah I mean if they've not seen Biker Grove <laughs> that's right yes indeed um, okay then. Well, now that we've talked about the Seven Santini brothers, yeah, Seven brothers, Seven Santini brothers, and the to, this is the To Live and Die in LA podcast, isn't it? It's also the Seven Santini brothers and their sister Brenda. The Seven Santini brothers and their sister Brenda. Yeah, I think the firm dissolved as as Rob said in 1993. I think that was as a result of the company heavily backing Highlander Two. <laughs> Well, they deserve it then, and they, they, their <laughs> building should be burned to the ground and the ground salted. <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke. I don't think that they put any money into Highlander 2. <laughs> that's I know, but it's just a risk of reaction because it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it is. Um, My worst night at university involved seeing Highlander 2. Yes, and you had... Yeah, it was just like a trail of... I mean, they didn't involve me falling into a wedding cake or anything like that, but yeah... Went to see Highlander 2 at the Showcase in Nottingham. Went to the Black Orchid nightclub, which is next door, which is, is hell on earth. Um, and then got back to the campus and found my bike had been nicked. So <laughs> that was great. So I spent the rest of the uh, my first year at uh, Trent Poly borrowing my housemate's bike, which was a girls racing bike, which was a bit small for me. But it was all the only bike we had and she wasn't using it. So I have no notes. <laughs> And And I blame Highlander 2. And despite all of that, Highlander 2 was still the worst thing that happened to you that night. Yeah, absolutely. It was. It was definitely. But, you know, I think at the time (laughs) the bike, but now in hindsight, now I I can look back, it was definitely (laughs) Highlander 2. Okay, then. So is there anything else to add to our discussion of this? It has to be said, I think, really energetic and lively and well done action scene well when the kurgan mimics brenda's scream when she says shut up and he goes shut up <laughs> is that him accurately mimicking her scream to that degree or is it non-diegetic what do you mean by that well when she screams shut up at him and he does it back to her and it's absolutely the same scream that's presumably like either he's an absolutely incredible mimic or that's non-diegetic. Mm, I mean, I've, I mean, I've had a look at the shot again, but I always thought that you can see her say it as he says it as well, because it seems to be that he's kind of counting down to her saying it again, and then he basically just lip syncs along with it. But I could, I could be wrong. I could have just been seeing what I thought was that, but it's not that. But I don't think you're supposed to think that he's actually saying it himself. I think you're supposed to think that he's kind of mouthing it while she says it. Okay. I, but Adrian, what do you think? I actually don't remember that bit at all. 
I didn't oh, notice great. it. I'm gonna have to go and grab. I, I can see the uh, Blu-ray sync by my TV, so I might have to go and watch it after this. Yeah, dude, have a look at it again because it's really good. Or it... just pause, pause the recording here, guys. Magic, can you edit this bit out? I'll just go and watch it, and I'll come back. All right then. I am joking. I'm not. Oh, that at all. So I'm not. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. But there is a bit when. So, um, other than that, is there anything else to mention? I think that's it for me. Mr. Zach? Definitely enough. Definitely a bit for me, yeah. It's all fair enough. Um, cool. Well, thank you very much for a lively discussion of a lively scene. Um, Adrian, if people wanted to find you on the internet to see other thoughts about films and whatnot, um, where can they do that? Tell me what happened to my bike. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm on I'm on Letterboxd and Instagram at Adrian J. Zach, Z-A-K. Brilliant. And Mr. Wallace? Well, firstly, if anybody does know what happened to Adrian's bike, please do reach out. At this point, I'm pretty sure <laughs> this is certainly past the statute of limitations. There'll be no legal repercussions. Yeah. At this point, I just think we want to know. It's 30-odd years ago. I think we're, we're fine. I don't want the bike back. I mean, I've got a nice bike now. I, don't, <laughs> I don't, definitely don't want a 1990 mountain bike back. But, if, you know, I hope it's gone to a good home. Adrian, don't you want closure? I'm not American. No, I don't need closure. I think I'm okay. I can live with it. I can bear a grudge, <laughs> Highlander too. But um, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> well, Mr. Wallace, how about you? Where can we find you? Um, well, if you want to find me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, out of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Um, you can also follow our other podcast, uh, Movie Robcast, in which Rob, uh, Rob Daniel and I discuss cinema in more more general terms. Again, if you can believe it based on this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that, um, And you can follow that on Twitter, at MovieRobcast, or uh, listen to that wherever you're listening to this. And Mr. Daniel, I believe you've recently set up an email account. Yes, indeed. So if anyone wants to write in with any comments or thoughts or corrections on what is said in any of the Movie Robcast episodes... You can do that. Or where my bike is. Or where Adrian's bike is, which is actually the reason why I set it up. You can do that at moviebroadcast at gmail.com. Well, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com, filmstories.co.uk and lovehorror.co.uk. You can you can find this podcast on Twitter at McLeod Time. And if you want to drop us a Highlander-themed email, you can do that at the wonderful email address who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. I say that because Mr. Wallace came up with it, not me. And if you've liked what you've heard, and how couldn't you? What a wonderful discussion. Um, then please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It is always much appreciated, and the feedback helps us with the various algorithms and whatnot. So, yes. Mr. Zach, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to hopefully coming back for the Highlander 2 podcast. <laughs> well, it's obviously going to happen at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so much, there can be only one Highlander podcast. Yeah. Except for the number one. But we have to acknowledge Highlander 2, though. We, we don't. Just have we to. don't. Some point in the not that too distant future. Yes. Uh... I rewatched <laughs> it earlier this year and it is fascinating. Um, but, Mr. Wallace. Thank you very much. And thank you, sir. And Adrian, would you like to take us out with a resounding rendition of Another Time McLeod? Another Time McLeod. I'll take that. I do like the way that you go low and threatening with it. That's just the easiest, easiest way to do it. Phone, phone manner every time. Is it a sex thing? <laughs>
we're back on that again. Yes, 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 Rob, it is. <laughs> Look, if there's one thing we know about sex immortals, they're going to be here forever. Well, I've just, my bike was stolen 30 years ago, which is before Rob was born, so yeah. It wasn't quite before I was born. I am older than 30 now. Good. Good. And ironically, it was stolen by sex immortals. <laughs> so, so I really don't want it back. You, you, you can keep that. You can keep it. I don't want it back. Yeah, keep it. They got what? a lot of use out of that bike. <laughs> that saddle has been worn down to a nub. Nub, yeah. <laughs> and yes. the less said about the brakes, the better. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and clear. Oh, 